0: Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and med-ed entrepreneur, Chase DiMarco. Dr. Jeff Smith has been a voluntary faculty member and assistant clinical professor at the University of California, San Diego for over 17 years. He's an orthopedic trauma surgeon and surgery coach that uses the eight practices of highly successful surgeons to create a lifestyle friendly practice. Jeff, how are you
1: doing today? I'm doing great, Chase. Thanks so much for having me. No, thank you,
0: and thanks for rescheduling. I know the first time we had some uh, audio issues, so I'm glad we can reconnect and get this valuable information from you and your practices and side groups here to the other faculty and students that might be listening to this.
1: Yeah, based upon what you're telling me, I hope this will be super valuable to uh, medical student audience and uh, the uh, preceptor teacher audience. That'd be great. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Yeah, there are not many resources out there for. Preceptors and physicians looking to maybe become a preceptor. So, if you're not in the academic setting, especially, it seems like what would you do? You've been out of it for many years. There are no resources out there. So, this should be a good resource for both preceptors and students and really gets the clinical education environment more easily accessible and allow people to prepare a little better for
1: it. Fantastic. I think you're doing a great thing and uh, look forward to seeing your future uh, podcast as well.
0: Well, thank you so much. Um, For your other group, Surgeon Masters, would you mind going into a little bit about that and maybe if the eight practices, practice being the acronym for the actual steps, might be useful for students as well or how that's used with surgeons?
1: Yeah, it certainly can be very useful for everyone. Uh, I'll just give you a little bit of the background. I've got into, gosh, I'm dating myself a little bit, but I got into medical school in 85 graduated in in 1990 and then went off and did five-year residency in orthopedic surgery then a couple years of fellowship training doing joint reconstruction and trauma then i took my first job at university of california san diego and was an academic orthopedic trauma surgeon for about five years and then in 2002 i went off into private practice still practicing orthopedic trauma surgery, but also still going around the country teaching, also run a fellowship program where since approximately 2005, been training an orthopedic trauma surgeon in orthopedic trauma surgery. So I've been, and still continue to do a lot of teaching. But around, I want to say, 2010 or so, I started looking for an exit strategy because now in retrospect, I realized that I was experiencing a fairly common experience of burnout. Despite having a very successful practice and being, I think, a very competent and potentially very good surgeon, I was just not figuring out why I didn't just have a joy mentality or a thriving mentality In the process, and in that search of looking for an exit strategy, I trained to become a certified professional coach. And the coaching models and the coaching concepts turned out to be my stay in strategy to stay in medicine. And the coaching concepts are something that I'm trying to educate people on because I think they pertain to the mission of what you're trying to do, and they really conform much more in line with. Adult learning theory. And so I just took some of that, a lot of that knowledge and repackaged it into the concept of the eight practices, which I can tell you more about. But I don't want to bore your listeners with rambling. I want, if you have particular questions or where you want me to delve into, what do you think?
0: Okay. uh, Maybe we'll revisit that at the very end then. But I, think that's a a great point that you make is whether it be from education, such as the point of this podcast, or through personal training, such as mentorship, we're kind of tossed into the deep zone and not given any weight to swim, not given the skills or the support necessarily uh, for a lot of physicians and students as well to be mentally healthy and successful in these very stressful occupations. So I think that what you're doing is very great too. And the whole aspect of physician life coaches and coaching in general and mentorship seems to be gaining a lot of familiarity and publicity lately. So I think that is definitely the route we need to go in the future to just for everyone to be healthy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think the general principles have the ability to be applied to wherever you are in your career or training. What then gets modified is just the appreciation for where you are in your life and your training, so you know certainly. While there's similar principles to coaching and learning, uh, much further into your practice and career, the how it applies when you're going through medical school, doing clinical rotations, and working with any educator during the phases of uh, residency training and similar things like that. There's in some ways just a, a little different perspective.
0: Definitely. And it seems like from the educational standpoint, you've had a lot of different experiences from, uh, I guess, regular MDDO type students all the way to fellowship um, training. What do you think is your role in education and what have your experiences kind of led to so far?
1: Well, I think I've gone somewhat through the transition and process of the traditional educational system that still exists, but it's in a process of evolution where there was quite a bit of didactic teaching or lecture based teaching and even an element that's not in the lecture hall of this is how i do it and how i do it's the right way to realizing that you know in all the circuits of teaching that i've been exposed to and i've been educator and the pupil that it's not always a particularly efficient, and it's not just efficiency, but it's not an efficient and it doesn't really place the teacher and the learner in the same space. And so I've really evolved to now having a much greater appreciation for, hey, if you're really begging me to give you the old school teaching, I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you how I do it. And I tell you that I hope that I'm right. But I think that I try very hard to bring the learner into a space of where you're at, what's your current understanding, and how can I help you be a very effective learner? And and certainly, a lot of things in life, there's a lot of knowledge about you know best practices along these ways. Some of them, you know, one really really good practice is modeling, and and much of our fellowship training is way less didactic and way more modeling what we currently do and how we adapt to updated knowledge and information. So we're modeling, hey, this is how I used to do it, but this is how I now do it, but we're constantly learning and we're constantly shifting. So, you know, that's just one example, but I'm way more into into that space when I deal with someone that wants to learn from me. And I think that One of the challenges that students have is they often come to a learning environment with an expectation of what they think are the best teachers and best educators. Some of them are role models. And over time, you usually start to figure that out. But some of them think the best teachers are the person that just gives them the answer. And the teacher or educator that helps them figure it out for themselves are sometimes from the other side of the coin, more effective preceptors or teachers because they're actually helping that person become their own learner and manager, manager of their learning process, if that makes sense.
0: It seems like a lot of information for medical education, whether it be the basic science or clinical science, is really strongly influenced by anecdotal evidence. It's whatever your fellow classmates said, whatever you heard on a blog, something to that degree, without maybe the best methods behind it or the best evidence base behind it. Uh, It sounds like that's part of what you're talking about there is the best preceptor is who they're going to like the best or who's going to maybe give them the easiest grade for that rotation without really clarifying what makes a good preceptor, what models of education should be followed. Uh, Is that kind of what you're getting at?
1: Yeah, and I think it's an integration. I mean, I think that some of that's the um, nature of different learners and the way human beings are. You know, there's a lot of this information that we hear about in politics and in life that the anecdotes or the stories are what actually drive people to change. But without any scientific basis behind it, right, it doesn't mean that you're changing in the direction that is actually going to be most effective. So I think it's kind of a blend of both. We're appreciating that there are anecdotal ways to convey information, but you also have to balance and integrate that with what's scientifically proven, whether it's a teaching method or whether it's an actual method of practicing something in medicine. The blend has the advantage of expanding knowledge, but actually understanding that people don't change their behavior simply on knowledge.
0: Yeah, it's kind of anecdotes pull on the emotional heartstrings a little bit more and they get the emotional tone, but not necessarily with the logic or evidence behind it. So having a mixture of the two, the logic and emotion would be a great way to instigate change. Absolutely. Do you see this happening a lot with preceptors currently in your specialty or in the past where maybe those in surgery in general or more specifically with orthopedic surgery, things that they're doing right or things that they're doing wrong, things that future preceptors should maybe be aware of and learn from?
1: Um, I do think there's transitions and examples of that. I think that what's challenging on the side of the student is that it's often you're coming at it from a perspective that is it's not necessarily bad but you're coming at it always just a little bit behind on what you should and need to know right i used to tell people that when you get into medical school you'll finally figure out what you should have asked when you were going to get into medical school and when you get in the residency you finally figure out what you should have asked getting into a residency but it's the nature Of things, it's the nature of life, and it's not something that's really a negative. You just then you're going to go through that process of learning what you need to know as you go along, and you're going to turn out great, anyways. So, but along the way, there are just enough bad examples that to most students or most people that are learning, and that would go for me as an educator, right? As I'm learning. When I finally know a little bit more, I then finally get it, right? So again, it's okay. But where you have the bad examples, you sometimes can't decipher that it's a bad example or that it's, it's not a great teaching methodology. The thing that I think will help anyone along the way is just the awareness that there's a debate there. As to what are effective ways and what are not. And to both be willing to have self awareness of your strengths and challenges in learning, or where you may disagree with how it's being taught, but be able to step back and think, well, wait, does that still have value to me? Does it still have a perspective that might be a way for me to learn something here and expand my knowledge and skill? And then awareness that that person that you're working with may be teaching you an old technique maybe teaching you in a less than ideal technique and just the knowledge of that that is a possibility is is a great first step
0: i'm guessing it would probably be difficult for most medical students anyway to notice if there's an old technique that their surgical preceptor is using but maybe for a residency where You're a little more familiar with the differences and what's old, what's new, could point that out a little better. Is there a way that you would recommend maybe approaching a preceptor if someone noticed that happening, some way to help them improve and help the student's education as well without getting on their bad side?
1: Yeah, don't sweat it. So the example would be that anything that you're learning now is not going to be how it's done. Well, I exaggerate. Tons of the stuff that you're learning right now will not be how it's done 10 years from now. That's, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, the most obvious recent examples are the amount of minimally invasive cardiovascular surgery. Everybody that learned it initially that's teaching you now learned it as primarily open procedures, Okay. The story was when I was learning knee arthroscopy as an orthopedic trainee was that those were open procedures by some of the more senior faculty. you know The recent faculty were you know, teaching newer techniques. And again, not every new technique is better than an old technique. So part of that is my point. Don't sweat it. Learn what our current knowledge is. Learn where it might be going and just have an awareness that there's still value to how it's being taught. It just has the ability to be either outdated or almost outdated by the time you're going to be doing it on a super regular basis. But that's just the nature of such rapid transitions in knowledge, technology, and so many things that are going on in medicine. That's a good point. Yeah, there are so many changes,
0: especially in, well, I guess surgery, pharmacology, every aspect of medicine is exponentially growing at this point. And one discipline or specialty can feed off another and sort of helps them develop a new technique or a new process. So the difference is as much as we have to strain over them for board exams and such where there is definitely a correct answer, sometimes it's a little more obscured in clinical practice.
1: Correct. But they're ideally on those examinations, most of those are the scientific-based things that can be backed up by a publication or an article or some element of the science. So again, that's one piece of your learning. And then the other piece of the learning is that may evolve over time. And your strength is going through the steps of succeeding where you're at, but also going through the steps that as medicine evolves, that you Realize there's not an end point. You're still going to be learning 10 years into your career and 20 years into your career like I am.
0: For the clinical setting in particular, surgery is a little bit unique in the aspect that, you know, the show is called the one-minute preceptor. And we often discuss the one-minute preceptor model or other models that are useful in education, but that's more for primary care and for other specialties where you will see a patient take a history, do a quick physical, and usually come back out to join your preceptor. In surgery, I could see this being done in pre-op and post-op, but are you aware of any different strategies or methods for while in the surgical suite, while in the operating room, that most surgical preceptors might implement, even if there's not necessarily a name for it, just sort of a process that everyone follows to some degree?
1: yeah, um, you know, tough question. but I think if I had uh, if I spent a little bit of time going through your one minute preceptor model, I'd be able to fairly easily come up with a parallel. because again, I think it's talking about broader concepts, right? And while some of this is knowledge based in the operating room, you're a little less driven to have that be your ideal setting for knowledge growth and more for an opportunity for skill growth. But again, if you're observing and you're just trying to learn how surgery occurs, then you could apply the the one minute preceptor model. Again, from a student perspective and the preceptor perspective it might be different, but having that shared communication that's getting a commitment right? That, you know, what can I learn in this case at my level in training? And maybe acknowledging where the preceptor has an opportunity for offering that commitment, right? Of what they can help you get from that particular procedure. I sometimes tell, you know, very young trainees or very early in training to, you know, try and take away something. There's always you know, that live experience in the surgical setting, well, I don't want to miss anything. It's like, well, you know, that's a little overwhelming, isn't it? (laughs) So, you know, all the opportunities for learning in in a particular case is, is overwhelming. And so just looking for that and then whatever you're going to learn, then like you point out to probe for supporting evidence that it's an effective thing, that it's supported by what you thought, right? And then, again, a lot of this is also receiving feedback. What did I do well in surgery? What can I improve upon? And an acknowledgement of other positives. I think the other challenge in just any teaching model, if I point out then all the questions you got wrong on a test or all the things that you didn't do right, then, you know, you've sort of tuned out after the second or third one any learning opportunity if i highlight mostly what you know and where your knowledge is and where it's advancing and where you've made progress then you're receiving that information much better and it's that's just again a, a concept of a little bit of human nature right that people receive positive information better than they receive negative but there is a lot of value in small critiques of doing something a little different or a little bit better.
0: Okay. So small bits at a time sounds sort of more intuitive on the aspect of the preceptor to feel out where the student is, where they're going to receive the most benefits and not overwhelm them with too much information at one time.
1: Yep. Let me twist it around a little bit for you and see if this is of value. So when you look at, you know, that interaction between preceptor and student, there's there's a knowledge exchange, there's a learning exchange, right? But there's an element of an audition. There's an element of, I want to get accepted for the audition. That's a different thing that sometimes gets in the way. Wherever it adds value, hey, I want to show my best. And wow, at the end of it, I did. And I'm excited about that. That's very rewarding. And You can learn that way too. But if you audition for something and you don't get the part, you know, there's a certain mindset of a person that keeps auditioning, anyways, because they realize that at some point they're going to fit the part. They're going to fit not only their own personal expectations, but the expectations of somebody else. But I, I think that's a dynamic that sometimes gets in the way of learning and that sometimes you have to turn that off, that you're not just there to audition that, hey, gosh, I'm the best student around, right?
0: Yeah, nobody likes the gunner.
1: <laughs> well, it's that, but also in the sense of you don't want, like the gunner that's, it's not genuine, right? If that person really is that excited, that person really is putting all that time and effort into it, all the power to them, right? But if it's purely an act, it's, I don't. Th- I think most fellow students don't appreciate that too much, and nor nor would a preceptor. I don't think. True.
0: It, it kind of reminds me of a lot of the characters on the show House, where you know, even some of the best ones they end up stabbing each other in the back all the time. So that's the type of personality you don't want around.
1: Yeah, and that's the that's where modeling comes in again. Like <laughs> this is how I want to be as a surgeon, and and this is how I don't want to be. Right. So. <laughs>
0: Are there any particular expectations you have for students that would start a rotation with you? Um, I'm guessing at this point, most of them are going to be third or fourth year students, but now it's becoming more common for first and second year students to start clinical rotations at some schools. So, what expectations do you have, and how do you weigh these differences in their education level?
1: Well, in the expectations, a good way to describe it is that I want them to know what they're wanting to get out of the experience, right? And then I'm wanting them to appreciate where they might add value to me and or where some of the stresses or challenges might be. So, and this is a difficult thing, but some students kind of just either are intuitive or they've figured it out or they just happen to have just the right amount of curiosity. And again, there's no perfect spot, right? Everybody's different. But where they inquisitive enough? They ask questions, they want to learn, but they're not asking questions so much that you're kind of like, wow, you know, like I still have to concentrate on the patient or I still have to concentrate on these other things. And being sensitive to look, it's a timeline. If you're on a rotation, you don't have to get everything done in the first day or the first week on the rotation, that you're learning and your growth would be expected. And then the fact that education and information would come to you on a gradual basis over the course of your rotation from a preceptor standpoint would also be expected. They kind of would want you to get some core aspects of knowledge. And then it would be gratifying for most preceptors that you're achieving some of your goals, but you're also demonstrating that you're finding value in that. Because teachers thrive on students that are enjoying their rotation, right? So there's a balance there like and if you're not enjoying cuz you thought you were supposed to learn one thing and you didn't, then you know both people are going to probably lose in that experience whereas if you in the first few days or first week of a rotation conveyed, "Hey, I'm really hoping to learn this." or have this kind of an experience, or this is what I want to get out of this, then sometimes that conversation early on can redefine that expectation because it may not be realistic, or might be able to acknowledge, wow, that's pretty reasonable. You know, we're going to be able to do that really well and give you a little bit of foreshadowing or notice how to have that experience flow in a way that's beneficial to the student as well.
0: Are there any particular maybe preparatory type of actions or resources, books, anything along those lines that you feel would benefit a student before an orthopedic surgery rotation?
1: Um, You know, I'd make it a little bit more broad-based. I mean, I know that I really enjoyed just a general book on, and I think it was Is- Iserson, uh, on getting into a residency. Had some you know, basic core knowledge of things that you would want to do in establishing mentorships, building your ability to apply to the next step. I think it has a good summary. But I would say just, you know, anyone starting a rotation in orthopedic surgery, expect to demonstrate your interest in learning and that you want to be based upon your level appropriately prepared. You know, if you're going to do certain procedures the next day, reading some about it, nobody expects you to be fully at their level of knowledge over the course of a, of a rotation. But if you're learning and leaving one day with an unanswered question and reading about it and coming back the next day with an answer to that question or what you think is probably an answer and then getting the acknowledgement from a preceptor. Again, those are, I think, core things in I think, a lot of disciplines, but certainly in orthopedic surgery. We like to see people reading and independent learning. And I think just a a willingness in response to what's expected on the rotation and trying to demonstrate that you're part of the team. I think most rotations that I'm aware of in orthopedic surgery like to treat the students as a member of the team, and where you participate in that team, that's usually very well uh, received.
0: I like it. I'm seeing a lot of teamwork-related comments and a lot of independent studies, as well as just setting the expectations. This seems to be something we come across in a lot of different specialties, a lot of different preceptors hold these values very true. So I think they're very valuable for students to really focus on and be aware of, because that's probably not something you're really taught during the basic science years. You're not trained as well on the actual interactions with the clinical preceptors in the clinical setting as one might expect.
1: Correct. Agreed.
0: What about letters of recommendation? Are there particular things that students should do or any activities that would be more likely for them to gain one? Is it just simply asking and how should they approach you when asking for one?
1: So there's a little bit of a broad spectrum. So there's, at one point in time of my career, I was functioning as a residency director without the title. So sometimes you're you're doing that without any expectation that the students need to do anything fancy. They need that, so they would get that. And I do that as a fellowship director. I write a letter of recommendation when they need a letter from a fellowship director. But it I think it always helps And where you're getting the ones that are more personal are where you have more a connection or or more of a relationship. And this is a specialty that you're going to go into, the key is to develop that a little extra relationship where that person has the ability to know you. I think it's, you know, there's a lot of different good ideas out there. One of them would be to introduce if you think it's a possibility that to want that from someone, that when you begin the rotation, you say, hey, I'm hoping that on this rotation, I will have had the opportunity to work with you enough and make an impression upon you enough that you would be comfortable writing me a letter of recommendation. In a way, that's not making a commitment. It's sort of saying, hey, if I achieve my goal, then you know you would hopefully be more comfortable writing that. And then you've had that preliminary ask and then uh, can ask that closer to the end of the rotation or after rotation. You know, how would you feel now having worked with me, writing me a letter of recommendation? So I think that's a, a good technique. I think the other just biggest pearl that you don't see too often messed up, but just making sure that the asks are far enough away from deadlines that you're not putting an undue pressure on someone who might be very excited to write you a letter of recommendation, but has a lot of things going on and. If the timeline of when that expectation is too short, they might disrespectfully decline because of the time constraints.
0: That's a good point. A lot of letters of recommendation I received in the past took several months, sometimes upwards of five, six months to uh, actually receive the letter just because of time constraints and other activities that the preceptors had. So they have a lot of extracurriculars sometimes going on and other things besides just the normal, already very hectic work schedule, family life, everything like that. So, very, Good to be aware of the time constraints and give plenty of time uh, for students.
1: I think with a lot of things, it's asking questions, but the questions aren't yes or no questions. So do I do this or in just even the surgical knowledge or medical knowledge, what's the answer to this question? And it's you know multiple choice or yes, no. But if you ask more open-ended questions such as, and would you let me know if there's certain information that you... Would find helpful to to write a letter of recommendation because I've had people ask me that and I'm like yeah I think that's really helpful because I do like to have your resume or CV when I'm writing it because there's some things that I may know about you but it isn't I'm not remembering it while you're writing your letter of recommendation but the the resume or CV does that for me. There are other people that it's just their style of how they write a letter or recommendation that they put even more effort into it than you realize. And some of that is with that additional information that you provide them.
0: Awesome points. I think that's uh, very useful and easy to forget. It could be a long period of time before they actually get around to and could have forgotten many of the aspects you discussed previously about the letter. So CV and keeping in touch without being overly burdensome to the preceptor being very key points there.
1: I would, you know, just make the one point, as much as you're educating people on great ways to do a lot of these things, my perception is people already do it quite well. It's a lot of this is nuance and it's more the minority of people that do things that you're kind of like, okay, so, you know, why are you asking me last minute? Or you're asking me, but this is the first time I've seen you on the rotation. That's really rare. So some of this stuff I think people intuitively know, they've also learned, but I think it is good to reinforce these thoughts that you're sharing. And now
0: a few questions I had. Uh, I'd like to start with a question, and that is, what is the funniest or the scariest thing that you have ever seen in a hospital
1: setting? Well, I'm a orthopedic trauma surgeon so there's probably too many scary stories to recount. (laughs) In medicine, you know, just taking a little bit of a different aspect, that in medicine, we sometimes use dark humor to manage stress. I was a little bit more common in the past, but even here, our somewhat extreme politically correct culture often doesn't understand the purpose of this humor of how it functions for emotional processing. So there's a lot of things that i've used old school strategies for in the past like some scary stories i if i sat down i'd probably remember them but i purposely blocked them out so (laughs) but i'll tell you um a funny and and scary story kind of combined that i i do recall when i was operating in the operating room when a moderate earthquake occurred and uh, while I was operating, I think it was on a patient's arm and the arms open for repairing a broken bone or fracture. And the hospital, the hospitals in California these days, and since this was, you know, anything probably in the last 10, 15 years has been built in a way to, to tolerate an earthquake more than in the past. And so when the, this earthquake occurred, it was one where the hospital kind of, rolls so you sort of felt the room almost as if it was on a waterbed or kind of like riding the wave and that's a very awkward feeling when you're in the middle of surgery oh jeez uh, not not to mention the lights flickering and then going dark and then shortly thereafter the emergency lights coming on so you know that one was pretty entertaining and I can share that one because the patient did fine we did you know we did fine there was really no lasting damage, but it was a very interesting experience.
0: I guess you just kind of have to roll with the hospital and wait for <laughs> it to stop shaking.
1: Exactly. I don't, I'm don't. i not looking forward to the, the next major one, so hopefully I don't have to live through that.
0: For uh, personal questions, you can choose either one of these or both if you want, but it is... Is there anything that you would have done differently in your educational career up to this point? Or if there's one dream that you would really like to see happen in medicine in your lifetime, what would it
1: be? Hmm. Also pretty challenging questions. Um I think that, you know, just my personal philosophy, and a lot of this is the coach training. And I think I lived probably the first, maybe half of my life thus far looking back at what I should have done differently. I, when I was in college, I wished I wasn't a little bit of a nerd in high school or, you know, whatever. So I looked back, like how I should have done so many things differently. And I probably got a little bit less into doing that as I've gotten older, but certainly when I went to the coach training, realized I've lived life the way I was supposed to live life. And, and so I have uh, much more mentality of that the way things happen is is of value to us and you know i don't have really much regret and much looking back of how i would have done things differently the what i would like to see in in medicine is that we really incorporate the concepts of wellness and self-care into the training and i appreciate that Training's a harder time in life, you know if you think about a lot of high performance areas, whether it be music, dance, sports, younger people can tolerate a lot more stress and lack of sleep and pressure on their bodies when they're younger so I'm not thinking that this should be an abrupt one eighty that you know somehow medicine and the training should be easy uh I don't think that's really going to be an effective way to train and learn. But I do think that learning the concepts of wellness and how to incorporate them into a very busy and challenging training are important to have as a foundation to expand upon as you get further into your career. And you know, there's so many examples that are, you know, mental, emotional, and physical you know, if you just take in surgery, like I never, when I was training the concept of, of ergonomic positioning, how you stood or how the table height, other things like that, there was probably maybe five to 10% of preceptors that actually understood it. And were are trying to teach people, Hey, you know, you really shouldn't slouch like that. Pretty much everyone else just said, you know, you just get the operation done, however you can get it done. And didn't, didn't realize the amount of musculoskeletal damage that we do to bad posture and and things like that and you could carry that over to all the mental stress that we go through mental abuse that we receive when we're in training emotional again that some of that we're not going to change it's a little bit human nature but certainly knowing that we could do it better and we should be striving to do it better is really important and and certainly something that When you get through enough hurdles, you ought to be able to understand that where you can control these things, where you can be mentally well, emotionally well, and physically well um, is going to certainly make for uh, a much longer career.
0: Very cool. And these should be implemented in medical school. So the actual learning environment then set up this way, set up to promote these types of healthy lifestyles, and then you're just used to it. So you would bring that with you into the clinical setting, into the medical arena later on.
1: Yeah, you know, there's times where, who knows, you go on a a mission trip and you're gonna be more challenged, but you're gonna probably come back stronger in other ways. Same thing during your training. There may be times in your training or in your career where it's not a super well environment, but how you process it how you know that it should be different, but still manage it as best you can is a wellness strategy. It's a wellness learning. So again, it's both sides of the coin, understand where we're at and where we're trying to get to and knowing that it can't just change instantaneously because there's just too many things in the system that are, are not well right now.
0: And I know we didn't get to go into great detail about Surgeon Masters or the Eight Practices technique. Where could students or preceptors listening to this show get more
1: information about these? Well, they can go to surgeonmasters.com. They can also contact me, uh, jeff at surgeonmasters.com for my email and learn more. Certainly the site has some information, but a lot of stuff is is out there as shared and free information. But the eight practices are, in essence, basic concepts of all the areas that we ideally want to excel in. Because if we're improving in all those eight areas, we have a much greater chance of being highly successful or what have you. So it's it's really a performance improvement methodology that can be applied in a d- bunch of different ways. And I'll just rattle it off real quick. They practice as our P passion for performance improvement, our reciprocity of roles and relationships, which is just that give and take of the various sorts of roles and relationships we have. A for attitude resilience. Again, a lot of this is about positive attitude and building resilience off of both positive and negative experiences. And then C, communication with mutual understanding. T, time-life management using rhythm because in, in most medical careers or issues, most people can't fathom how it would be work-life balance, but you can get rhythm in your life and be incredibly gratified, satisfied with your career and your life. And then there's the I for in, inspiring to shared goals and then the second C, which is complex problem solving through simplicity. So the greatest example is the eight practices is kind of a more complex methodology. So you sometimes have to break it up into its individual parts to actually solve a complex problem, right? And then lastly, the E, which is energy for personal and practice wellness. And so what that is, is eight different practices, but it's also the concept that in any one of them, you have to practice them to get better. And then lastly, they're a little bit of a feedback loop that when you gain energy, you then have reinvigorated the ability or wellness to have passion for more improvement. So it's really been fun. It's been a great way of actually dealing with some of my own challenges and dealing with challenges of other physicians and surgeons that have used Surgeon Masters to receive uh, physician coaching.
0: That sounds very useful. A great little tool to keep on at all times. We'll try to have the image of that and your links in the show notes as well. So any listeners can go there and check them
1: out. Thanks for having me. And uh, keep in mind that essentially your audience is already really far along in the process of where they're wanting to be. And 99% of them are going to get there maybe even higher than that. And then, you know, the other thing though, is that the biggest obstacle to a longer career is not actually taking care of those other issues that we don't necessarily learn a lot about during training, which are these wellness concepts and performance improvement concepts. And your example of the preceptor model, that's, again, that's a wellness strategy.
0: Good point. And I want to thank you so much, Dr. Jeff Smith of Surgeon Masters for taking the time to come on the show today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.